Hello, welcome to Going Deeper. My name is Marcy Sklove, and we are now in part two of my interview with Dr. Irvin Staub. Uh, we spoke a lot in the first, the first segment um, about his work mostly with children, and now we're moving into some of the work that, that you've done with uh, the more evil genocide, the difficult group kind of bad stuff. So welcome, welcome back. Thank you, thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, well, um, you know, having worked for a good number of years on what leads people to help others yes. or what stops from them from helping others when others need help, and then having written a couple books on it, uh, had a sabbatical and I began to think about what leads people to harm others. When you study helping, you study not helping. And you study how come people stand by when there is great need often. Uh, and it's one step from there to ask how come people harm others in an intense way and what are the influences that lead to that. And I spent a very long time writing my first book on this, mm. something like eight years, because in addition to psychology, mm -hmm. I studied in depth the history of each of the cases that I oh, was looking at. Uh, the Holocaust, mm -hmm. the genocide of the Armenians in Turkey, mm -hmm. uh, the auto-genocide in Cambodia, the disappearances in Argentina, which yeah. was not a genocide, but it was a mass killing. Yeah. You know, probably yeah. about 30,000 people were killed Gosh. and very many more were tortured and other bad things were done to them. Yeah. Uh, so on the basis of this work and applying psychological principles and understanding to the history of these groups and what happened, I developed a kind of overall understanding of what leads to these things. Mm. One of them is really difficult conditions of life in a society. Yeah. And that can be economic deterioration, not poverty, mm -hmm. but things getting worse. It can be great social changes, even positive changes dislocate people and yeah. create a kind of chaos. Mm -hmm. And negative changes do it much more. Uh, political chaos and confusion in mm -hmm. a society, all these have a powerful impact on people. And as I think about it, they frustrate universal basic human needs. Yeah. They frustrate the need for a positive identity, mm -hmm. a feeling good about oneself, positive, the frustrated the need for security, mm -hmm. for the feeling that I am, my body is safe, safe, my family's body is safe, mm -hmm. that I can provide with them with food and shelter and the minimum requirements of life. A feeling of connection to people is disrupted because mm -hmm. everybody is so impacted 
you know, people look out for themselves sure. and they get disconnected from each other. A feeling of effectiveness, you know, the ability to do things and provide for oneself mm -hmm. uh, and for one's family. So all of these things are frustrated and usually people have no idea and no vision how to improve these things. Yeah. So one of the things happens is that they begin to scapegoat. Yeah. Somebody is at fault and it is not my group and it's not us. And usually the group that is identified as being at fault for this is the group that has historically been devalued in that society. Mm -hmm. In many societies, there are divisions between us and them. Even societies that are homogeneous, ethnically or religious, racial yeah. homogeneity, there are wealthier people and poorer people. Mm -hmm. So there is usually this division of some kind. Yeah. But in many societies, there are minorities. And they historically are often seen in a negative light. And there are different ways to see people in negative light. You can see them as you know, lazy and good for nothings, or you can see them as a threat to yourself and dangerous. Uh, you can see them as you know, exploiters in some way. So this historical devaluation mm -hmm. now is intensified, yeah. leads to scapegoating. And there is one other psychological group process, and that is that over time, the group creates an ideology that is destructive in the sense that it has a positive element, perhaps, but some people are identified as standing in the way yeah. of fulfilling this ideology. So, yeah. for example, in Cambodia, the Khmer Rouge had a vision of total social equality. Everybody should be completely equal in this society. Mm -hmm. But then they identified the former elite, also intellectuals. Mm -hmm. They identified these people as unable to contribute and even unable to accept hmm. such a world. Oh. And so they proceeded to destroy wow. these people. Yeah. Uh, you know, having glasses put people in danger because wow. the Khmer Rouge assumed that people ruined their eyes by reading too much, hence intellectuals, hence people who would not accept this kind of a society. So, so what, what would have, is there something that would have stopped, interrupted this process that you, you, you know, you talk about, like, is there something that could have come in and, and interrupted it? Well, you know, another, a crucial piece of this is the passivity of bystanders. Mm -hmm. And I mean by people in the society who are not part of the process and outside parties. And bystanders usually have the potential and the time to act because hostility, negativity, and violence evolve. When society or individuals in the society take action against other individuals, they change along the way. They justify their actions, mm -hmm. they devalue the people more, 
they create a moral universe in which these people deserve what it is coming to right. them. So as this evolution takes place, you can observe it, you can see it, yeah. and there is the potential to take action. Yeah. Unfortunately, what I call internal bystanders, people within that society, mm -hmm. usually remain passive. Why? Well, for one thing, it's an authoritarian system usually, right. and so it's dangerous. Sure. For another thing, uh, you know, people might feel helpless on their own. Also, they themselves are affected by these conditions. Yeah. They also have learned to see that group in a negative light. They are also affected by life conditions. And so they remain passive and a very small number of people begin to act mm -hmm. when the genocide actually begins. Yeah. One of the challenges is to move this forward. External bystanders, as I call them, outside mm -hmm. parties, mm -hmm. also usually remain passive. Right. In Germany, in the 1930s, corporations hmm. from many countries were busy to do business with Germany because they were interested in uh, profit. Yeah. Uh, so in spite of the fact that the Nazis killed first non-Jewish internal enemies and then started a really intense persecution of Jews, uh, outside parties in various ways supported the system sure. by doing by business doing, with them. By doing business with them and not saying any, not doing anything yeah. to counter it. You know, and symbolically, yeah. there was an Olympics in 1936 in Germany. Oh my God. And there was a four by 100, I believe, U.S. male running team who had a world record. And they had two Jewish members and they were taken off the team even without wow. being asked. And the justification was supposedly to create an even better team. But the fact is that the original team, two weeks after the Olympics, had a new world record. Uh, the organizers, the American organizers, tried to please the wow. Germans. So that's a great example. Actions by early actions yeah. where it's more likely to be effective because early on there isn't yet a commitment yeah. to eliminate this whole group of people. That commitment usually evolves and develops over time. Sure. You know, the only known action, well, let me backtrack. There was a so-called euthanasia program, yeah. but it was really a eugenics program. Not mercy killing, but purifying the race. And so the Germans were killing uh, mentally ill and physically handicapped Germans. And once this became known, the population spoke up, relatives spoke up, lawyers groups, mm -hmm. Catholic church leaders, and the program was terminated. Oh. Nobody spoke out for the Jews. And the only time when there was a demonstration in their behalf was when the husbands of German women, Jewish husbands of German women, 
were beginning to take away, they were taking away and taken yeah. to Auschwitz. And German women started to, the wives started to demonstrate in front of government buildings. Yeah. And you know what sense. happened? They killed them. They stopped the deportations. Oh, they did. Everybody I said. I thought you were going to say they killed the women. No. The, yeah. They, I mean, my point is that people say the German, the Nazis were so committed to killing right. Jews that nothing would have stopped them. Well, the fact is, and again, the explanation by some is, well, it was in the middle of the war and didn't want to alienate the German population. Mm -hmm. We don't know. All we know is that the only time when there was bystander action yeah. against this, it was effective. And some of the husbands were brought back from Auschwitz. So, uh, yeah. so the point is that that's one thing. There are many things can be done early on. Speaking out, taking economic action, engaging with leaders, uh, all kinds of things. Yeah. Trying to get the population engaged there. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that could make a difference. Okay, so... Um we're in a presidential uh, campaign year, and I'm thinking about the phenomenon of Donald Trump, but not just him. I'm getting like I'm I'm applying what you're saying to this situation, and I get the economic piece is, as you say, it's not it's deteriorating for the people. What I'm curious about is the people who are supporting Trump, who go to those rallies, who get all riled up with so much hate. <coughs> and I, from the reading that I did of your work, I know that you have worked with journalists, but I also, with, with, journalists, yes. I also was thinking about how the media sort of presented Trump for many months in kind of a joking, humorous way, and never called him on his hate speech and on his bigotry and all of that. So how do you think about your work in this context with what's going on? Well, there are so many aspects to this and so many elements to this. One is, the deteriorating economic conditions for some people in this country. Right. But it is also the feeling of disconnection from the larger community. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, one of the things that Roosevelt did at the time of the Great Depression yeah. was that he created these work programs that not only have people with their livelihood, but also said to people, you are part of this community. Mm. We wow. are in this together. Mm -hmm. uh, so the psychological element of disconnection, when there are such huge cultural and social changes, and of course, the demographics, the increased number of Hispanics and other minorities is a part of this. And then, you know, I mean, there are, look at what Trump is saying and said from the very beginning, we are going to make America great again. 
So why don't these people feel that America is great? There are commentators who describe all the wonderful ways that America is still great and continues to be great. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, for these people who may be quite patriotic, yeah. but also nationalistic, yeah. you know, loving country doesn't necessarily mean that you are also nationalistic, that you want to enhance the greatness and so on of your country. Mm -hmm. but Look at the history of the United States. Lost war, one after another after another. Huh. And we don't talk a lot about that, but, you know, Korea, mm -hmm. we didn't really win. Right. Vietnam, Vietnam, we lost. Sure. Iraq, we lost, basically, in spite of the fact that we sort of won, but really, I mean, yeah. look at Iraq. Look at the cre incredible mess. So, yeah. Uh, Interesting. These people who are patriotic and nationalistic and who Trump tells we are going to make this country great again, and they don't specify, they don't talk about exactly. this. But I think that this is an element in that also. So all these things, a white Anglo-Saxon or, or at least white and Christian America and there are all these people who, the people we are talking about not, don't really see as white. I mean, a lot of Hispanics are white, but sure. that's not necessarily how they see them. The issue of Muslims, the issue of all the threats to their lives. So all this activates them. And I think the challenge really is to create, recreate a sense of community. Yeah. Now, people do need better jobs. Yeah. There would be one thing that some people have been talking about for quite a long time. We have this terrible infrastructure. Right. I mean, really, roads, bridges, Absolutely. railroads, everything. And money still is as cheap as it has ever been. Hmm. So that could bring people in yeah. into work that pays them better, right? Uh, that would be one very valuable thing. Yeah. But the other thing is, you know, look at who is giving people a sense of vision, hmm. a constructive vision. No one. No one. Uh, I mean, I am going to vote for Hillary, uh, but uh, is Hillary giving people that sense of vision, that right. sense of, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders was giving a vision, but it was an unrealistic vision and a limited vision. Hmm. Uh, so we need some kind of a vision that people can hold on to because we human beings are powerfully influenced by ideas and their emotional components. Yeah. And so we need something like that. Yeah. So that people have a way to define greatness yes. in constructive and positive ways. Yeah, and inclusive ways. Inclusive ways, yeah. inclusive ways. You know, values of cooperation. Mm. You know, how can we promote values of cooperation when there is this huge inequality? and when Congress is doing what it is doing right. or not right. doing anything. Right. Uh, so 
having a sense that, yes, the different segments of this society cooperate with each other and that I can participate in a constructive way in a cooperative effort as part of some kind of a vision mm -hmm. could make a really important difference. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm aware that the the time, we have less than 10 minutes, but I did want to touch on your work in Rwanda. And just as you were telling your story here, I was imagining you going to Rwanda and meeting people who had survived the genocide there and meeting them as a person who also survived a genocide and how moving that must have been for both of both sides. Yeah. Can you talk just briefly about the Rwanda work? Yeah. Well, you know, in 1997, I organized the only conference that I ever organized that took place in Sweden on the prevention of genocide. And I invited uh, the men who invited me to Rwanda in 1995, right after the genocide, when they had a conference on how to move on with life after the genocide. I couldn't go because I was in India with the Dalai Lama. Oh, wow. But now I invited him. And uh, my students and I prepared materials about a number of places of violence. And, you know, we met in small groups a lot and talked about, among other things, you know, what would we do in response to these conditions and violence? And then in the last little group meeting, everybody made a commitment to, hmm. was asked to make a commitment to do something to prevent violence after the genocide. Wow. And uh, uh, my partner, Lori Perlman, yeah. and I decided at that time that we are going to go to Rwanda. Oh my goodness. And, uh, we developed a program for healing and reconciliation uh, and, uh, you know, serendipity in life. People were writing me saying that, you know, the Templeton Foundation has grants for the scientific study of forgiveness. So our first grant we got from the Templeton Foundation. And so we went to Rwanda and we, our idea was to have a self-standing uh, project. But after 24 hours, we decided, no, we wanted to leave something behind. Mm -hmm. So we uh, uh, met with a group of people from different organizations. We asked them what it is that they want us to do. And one of the things they want us to do was to talk about the origins of genocide. Yeah. which by now has, by then has been my work for many years. Right. So we started to do trainings and workshops for people working for local groups as facilitators, working with groups in the community, mm -hmm. for national leaders, for community leaders, for various other groups. And then some of the people involved in this were telling us that we should expand the reach of what we were doing. So we decided to go to educational television. And we got a producer involved 
who used to be a film and television producer, yeah. and we persuaded, and he wanted to do a program with me, a television series on hate in 10 lessons. Yeah. We persuaded him to instead come to Rwanda and work with us to produce radio. I forget, he was from Sweden or Denmark uh, or? No, he, he, he lives in, in the Netherlands. The Netherlands, Dutch, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, um, so we, we, we started to develop this first radio drama, embedding in the radio drama the actions, the behaviors, the materials that would help people understand the origins of genocide, but also contribute to healing. For example, something very simple like have people understand that just by listening to each other, yeah. empathically engaging with another person as that person talks about their traumatic experience is healing. Right. And, you know, many other things. This is. Now, this radio drama and other radio programs started in 2004, the first broadcast. It's still ongoing. And we, in 2006, moved to Burundi and to the Congo, oh. creating radio programs there. Yeah. Uh, very recently, uh, it started in the South Sudan. Uh, hmm. So it's now a very large program. Uh, some of my former students are involved and some other associates are involved. I, I have to also say that you can look at a lot of the programs or examples of them because they're in English, they're not in the local language. But I was able to listen to some of the radio program on the internet. You were? Yeah. It was so interesting, and it was done with um, filming of the actors coming and receiving their script, and then how they sit together to do, you know, the the show, and then beautiful, beautiful photographs of families sitting around the radio and, and listening, and just the same way that used to be a big part of our, our culture here in the U.S., yeah. you know, long time ago. Yeah, there's a lot of joint listening there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the program started with a conflict between two villages uh, and personal issues between people in the two villages. And uh, one village attacks the other village and then counterattack and then lots of things happen and reconciliation over a period of time. And, and there was something someone was explaining of the people writing the material that these two villages were made up. They weren't real villages. That's right. And that in both village there were good people and bad people in both. That's right. So that there could be no sort of stigmatizing that they're the right. bad guys, we're the good guys. Yeah. And you know, we, all these ideas, understanding why violence begins, because people, when they see just one thing, the first tap of the evolution, they think, well, it's just a little thing, I don't need to do anything. Right. But they need to learn that one thing leads to another right. thing. And you know, so we promote active bystandership by examples of very popular characters. You know, two people, very popular people got married and oh. people were sending on the, on the radio yeah. and people were sending presents oh. <laughs> to, the, <laughs> to the radio Oh, station. that's wonderful. This has been so great. I wish we had hours and hours to 
talk these things out. But for now, we're going to close. I would like to thank you, Irvin, for coming and thank you. sharing so Very much. Very nice talking to you. Yeah. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time on Going Deeper.